to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and I am joined here today by the lovely Journey Nicole. This week, Nicole will be telling us all about the case of Jeremy Stanky and Jasmine Richardson, and Journey will be educating us on the Canadian Youth Criminal Justice Act and how it played an instrumental role in this case. Uh, we'd like to thank one of our amazing listeners who actually reached out to us online and suggested that we cover this case. We are uh, very excited to learn more about it. I'm personally very interested. I know a little bit about it, but I definitely don't know all the details, so I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, just before we begin, there is a listener's discretion advised as there are detailed descriptions of uh, murder, including that of a child and an underage relationship. So, Nicole, do you care to get us started on who Jeremy and Jasmine were or are? Of course. So to start off, the Richardson family lived in Medicine Hat, Alberta. The parents, Mark and Deborah Richardson, had two children, eight-year-old Jacob and 12-year-old Jasmine. This 12-year-old Jasmine, she was in a relationship with 23-year-old Jeremy Stainkey, which her parents did not approve of and forbade her from seeing him, which is a bit understandable. Um, Jeremy's mother, as a child, um, she was an alcoholic, and he was actually, unfortunately, abused by her partner as a child. He was bullied in school, and at the age of 13, he unfortunately tried to take his own life after being diagnosed with depression and hyperactivity. Jeremy used to tell his friends that he was a 300-year-old werewolf, that he liked the taste of blood, and he would even wear a little vial of blood around his neck as a necklace. And this was for like 10 years. So this began after he was diagnosed with depression and hyperactivity. He just took on this persona of a werewolf for the next 10 years until he was 23. The two of them both had accounts on this website called vampirefreaks.com. And it's suspected that this is how Jasmine and Jeremy met. But in reality, like through mutual friends or through acquaintances it came to light that jeremy and jasmine had actually met at a punk rock concert at the beginning of 2006 i don't know if it was a concert concert or like a convention it was like a gathering but the fact that 12 year old was at this is a little interesting so the two of them also communicated through the Canadian social networking site called Nexopia. I had no idea it was a thing. Apparently it's still live. It still runs. I had to Google it. And Jasmine's username was Runaway Devil, and she claimed to be 15 years old. On April 3rd of 2006, Jeremy made a post saying, quote, Payment. My lover's rents are totally unfair. They say that they really care. They don't know what is going on. They just assume. Their throats, I want to slit. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood shall be payment. End quote. A little aggressive, I'd say. Just a little. That's, that's threatening. That's, that's scary. I was just going to say that that sounds horrifying. Yep. Not no. like... To erase any suspicion or anything like nope totally normal no not something i'd want my 12 year old associated with at all mm -hmm. mm -mm. 
And even like a couple weeks later after this post, the couple, along with some friends, they watched the 1994 movie Natural Born Killers. I've never seen it, but when I was reading up on it, it talked about how it was these two people in love that killed someone so they could be together. Oh, it has Woody Harrelson in it. Two young, attractive serial killers who become tabloid TV darlings thanks to a sensationalistic press led by Robert Downey Jr. So, I guess they got a little inspired from this movie. Because the day after, the two of them acted out their gruesome plans out of love. So, Jeremy and Jasmine entered the house where Jeremy first killed the mom, Deborah. And Jasmine was encouraging him this whole time. So he stabbed her 12 times and one of them actually pierced Deborah's heart and left a 12 centimeter deep wound. Yay. Wait, so it was Jeremy that killed her? Yeah. So the two of them were both there together, but Jeremy Mm -hmm. was the one that did most of the hard work, I guess. Oh, I always thought that she was the one that killed all of them. No, I think oh. it's because it's like they she was kind of the believed to be the mastermind behind it. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And so Mark actually ran down from upstairs after hearing his wife's screams. And then Mark himself tried to fight Jeremy back with a screwdriver, I guess. And then Jeremy stabbed him 24 times. And out of those, nine were inflicted on his back. After the parents um, were killed, Jasmine, she was the one that then went upstairs to where her eight-year-old brother was, um, stabbed him five times, and they were in the face and the chest region. And one of those was actually Jeremy had slit his throat. Um, and cut his jugular. So he had passed away due to a severed jugular vein. And the medical examiner also noted that there was a possibility of strangulation as well. And so after everything kind of happened, I guess later on, Jasmine reportedly said that she wanted to, quote, take on her brother, end quote, and it would be just too cruel to leave him without his parents. So sorry. The brother, she stabbed him five times and then the boyfriend strangled him and cut his throat. Yeah. So the boyfriend cut his throat and there was like some indication of strangulation, but it was the cut to the jugular that is what ended up ultimately killing him. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Jasmine actually testified in court that her brother pled for his life while she was stabbing him and said that he didn't want to die young. I don't love that. No, I don't. I don't understand how you can do it. This to your own family at 12 years old. Um, yeah. Cause then even two hours after these killings, they were seen laughing, kissing and eating dinner at a restaurant, Jeremy and Jasmine, like as if nothing happened. How do you just continue on your normal life after just completely massacring your family? They were in love, Journey. You do you do crazy things when you're in love. What movie is that from? I have no idea. 
But I've also never murdered my entire family in the name of love. So maybe it's not true love. That's what I'm saying. Maybe maybe true love only exists when you massacre your entire family. I guess so. You do crazy things when for people you're in love. It's from Tangled. Eugene Fitzherbert tells... No? No. no. I think it is. You guys are crazy. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. Back on track. Uh, so the following day, on April 23rd, one of Jacob's, so the little brother, one of his friends, I guess they had like a play date or something. He went over to the house and he thought he saw a body through the window. So he kind of freaked out, ran home, told his mom. And then his mom was actually the one that called the police to have them kind of look at the house. Inspector Brent Sekondiak, um, he looked into the basement window when he got this call and saw at least one person on the ground. And he actually called for backup, hoping that they were able to save someone because I guess as an investigator, your first thought is, I hope they're not all dead. Like you want to help them, which makes sense. Um, But unfortunately, all three had been deceased and Jasmine was nowhere to be seen. So originally, they didn't even consider the daughter to be a suspect. They thought that she had been kidnapped by this crazed killer and that she was in danger and in trouble. So an Amber Alert was sent out in search of Jasmine. And I don't know if it differs like in Canada and the States. We have Amber Alerts. It's just like a missing child emergency thing that goes out to everyone. Not they sure They do what have it's those called. in the States. Actually, in uh, Texas the other day, they were testing their Amber Alert system. Uh, and it wasn't supposed to go out to the public. It was just for like the police department. And they sent out an alert that um, perfectly described that the suspect was the doll Chucky. Um, like it, described, <laughs> it described the suspect as like a 28-year-old male that's three foot, like six inches tall. And in for, um, I think, gender or ethnicity or something, it said other doll. What? And this was and sent out went, to all of Texas. It, yeah, it went out, I think, three times to Texas. <laughs> Well, that's an oopsie. This Amber Alert was not for Chucky the doll, uh, unfortunately. (laughs) But it was in search for Jasmine. And they said that it was, quote, regarding a serious family matter, end quote. So they kept it. Obviously, you're not going to go to the public and be like, oh, her family was all massacred. We're looking for her. But as they continued their investigators, they actually realized that she was not the victim at all. But she then became a suspect because of this stuff that they found, like, on her social media accounts, on her laptop computer, whatever she had. It actually showed that Jasmine came up with the whole plot herself and to kill her family so the two of them could be together. She wrote to Jeremy saying, quote, I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you, end quote. At 12 years old. At 12. No, I don't. I don't appreciate that. He's literally twice your age. Yeah, that's not okay. And I think I feel like there's um, many other ways to try and make it work without killing your family. But that's, like, just my, that's just my opinion on the matter. 
Yeah, I would say just like wait until you're legal. Yeah, so it's not statutory rape if anything happens. Yeah, and the person you love so much doesn't go to jail and your entire family stays alive. Yeah, but Mm. I mean, to each their own. She must just have different thought processes. It's okay. And like, I don't. I don't know if it's like the ironic thing, but she had actually told all of her friends about this plan that she was going to kill her family, go off to be with Jeremy. And none of them believed her. They were like, no, you're not. Cause I guess she was a super like, not preppy, but very like well put together 12 year old girl. And then as soon as she kind of met Jeremy, she turned full goth. Like it, she took pictures with her holding guns on her MySpace page, like all of this stuff and like crying black tiered makeup. It was just, it was a big, big change. Anyway, so going on to like kind of the trial aspect of it on April 24th. So this is the day after they were caught by the police. So it like, it only took them a day to catch them. Basically they were found about 130 kilometers away in Saskatchewan or Saskatchewan, whatever, same thing. And they were both charged with three counts of first-degree murder. So in 2007, Jasmine testified that her conversations with Jeremy were only hypothetical and that she didn't ever intend to go through with killing her family. Only hypothetical, guys. She I never, it's, it's all, it, it just, it might look like it was me because of all of this evidence, but Someone else is just really trying so hard to frame me right now. It's nuts. Exactly. And she also tests. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say it's not hypothetical if you actually do it. Yeah. But I mean, she's 12. She doesn't have the cognitive processes and the intelligence uh, that we may have in this situation. You know? So I'll, I'll, get, I'll give that to her. She's 12. She's 12. Um, and the fact that she's alive now, Jasmine, if you're listening to this, please don't come for us. Thank you. Just side note. Okay. Um, she also testified that Jeremy had broken into their home, killed her parents, then ordered her to stab her brother. She also said she was in a zombie like state and that she wasn't able to stop her boyfriend. So I guess this was her defense plea whatever at trial so she pled not guilty but was charged and found guilty by jury for three counts of first degree murder but since she was a youth she was given the maximum sentence possible for youth offenders in canada so as an adult you can get life but then it's parole and eligibility from like 10 to 25 years something like that but with youth it's a 10 year i believe it's a 10 year imprisonment but then she had to she was credited 18 months for time previously served and she also had an additional four years to be served in a psychiatric facility and then four and a half years under supervision within the community so she only got six years i think in jail And when she was asked why they did it, she said, quote, I loved him so much. I thought it would bring us closer together, end quote. Um, So is she released, like, in the general population now? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll get to that. (laughs) Good. I love that. Okay. 
How uh, how close are you to Medicine Hat, where you are, or where your farm is? The farm is very far away, but where I am is not far enough to make me feel comfortable. You should go searching and say, hi, <laughs> we did this thing about you. Why did you do it? <laughs> no, probably not going to make myself known to a known serial killer. OK, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. So a year later, 2008, Jeremy, since he was an adult, was convicted of three counts of first degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison with a parole ineligibility of 25 years, which is the max that you can get. While in jail, they sent letters back to each other, and Jeremy proposed to her through letters. He wrote, quote, you said you want to get engaged? Then here's the cue, dot, dot, dot. Will you marry me? If so, then it is a verbal agreement. And it's just, like, not grammatically correct at all. And me saying it sounds like, okay, yeah, it just, it's hard to read. You're just like, letter U said you want to get engaged question mark like it's just not how a 24 year old should be writing and then she replied with ah, ha, 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 ha. oh quote ah, ha, 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 ha. i never thought i'd find myself hysterically laughing in a holding cell in these kinds of circumstances but still ah, ha, ha, you make me so happy yes yes i will i would love to end quote that sounds like a text conversation, not a letter conversation. Like, I don't know that I've ever written out a ha 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 ha. Right? <laughs> in a letter. Maybe I should it's, start doing that. That sounds like fun. I enjoy reading that. <laughs> a ha 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 ha. But like, is that how you would read it? Like, what, is he there reading it and going like, a ha 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 ha. Okay. Yeah. Like, you don't, it just, anyways. Besides the point, there was no remorse shown in these exchanges exchanges of letters it was just a mess and while she was doing her time in the psychiatric um, facility she was actually diagnosed with conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder which is shocking because this is typically only seen in men not only seen in men but the high proportion of it is in males and i learned about in my abnormal psych class too that these are kind of like the precursors to antisocial personality disorder so you aren't diet you can't I think it is that like you can't be diagnosed with APD unless you had conduct disorder if you've been diagnosed with conduct disorder as a child. I guess. I don't know, I could be wrong. This is from what I can remember, but it was also a year ago that I took that course. Anyways, she was released in 2011 to serve her time in this facility and she actually went to Mount Royal University. She enrolled and was a student in Calgary. In 2016, her 10-year sentence was finished, and she was released at 22 years old and is now living under a different name. So she's said to be the youngest person in Canada to have been convicted of multiple murders. And there's actually a book that's been written about it. It's called Runaway Devil, How Forbidden Love Drove a 12-Year-Old to Murder Her Family. So you can I like how they get, put sorry. sorry, I like how they put her username in the title. <laughs> right. right. You get to hook them in that way. It's fun. It's fun. And then Jeremy himself, obviously, because he's in for life, he tried to appeal. And thankfully, he didn't get he didn't win his appeal. So he's still in jail. 
Um, Jasmine is living out and about. Some people in her, I think she lives close to her family community in Medicine Hat. And some do not like this at all. They are not a fan of her being here. And then others are like, well, you know, like she made a mistake. She was a child. It's okay. She's learned from it. She's, she's had her time to uh, learn and all of this stuff. I'm like, if you and your family get killed, that's on you. Okay. That's on you. But that's all I have for that story. It's, not very long since it was in the span of three days. Uh, but yeah, the story of forbidden love. It reminds me of, um, you know, that case in the United States where this boy had like an online relationship with this girl and like this super metal gothic online chat. And then they met for a get like a con, um, conference or convention and then she kind of rejected him because he didn't look he wasn't who he kind of portrayed himself as online obviously and so he decided to kill all of them the whole family and friends and lived in the house for like a week kind of reminds me of that it reminds me of and I think I read this in a book about cults where there was like this group of teenagers who decided they were going to run away and be vampires and I don't know I think I'm like mixing like eight different memories I'm not totally sure of the the story and I can't tell if I saw like a criminal minds episode or I actually read this somewhere or I'm just completely making it up but they like met and they killed her parents and then they ran away and they like went on a road trip and they like tried to convince all these people to also become vampires and it was very weird. And I wish I remembered more because it was very interesting. But that's what that ca- this case reminds me of. And it's a little spooky. It's like a weird um, sci-fi version of the Manson murders. <laughs> Trying to get everyone to turn into vampires going around, all that. But yes, yeah, that for- is Jasmine Richardson and Jeremy Stainkey. Well, thank you so much, Nicole, for telling us um, about this case study. It was very interesting. I didn't know that it was they were caught so soon, only a day after it happened. Um, yeah. So I guess they weren't very good criminals. I mean, I guess to the police, that's a good thing, but they weren't very good criminals. Yeah, they literally got in Jeremy's truck and they just drove east and they were found in Saskatchewan with some friends, I guess. And there was like more, there was a little bit more to it, but I couldn't find a lot on it about how Jeremy like asked his friends for help on maybe disposing the bodies. So I guess one of his friends was actually charged years later as an accomplice or like something like that. Yeah. But it was just an outside person that got charged. It was, he didn't do anything. He didn't kill them. He just kind of was got the short end of the stick. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, so she was convicted of murdering three people. And yet because of the Youth Criminal Justice Act, only received 10 years. Journey, would you care to tell us about the criminal, uh, the Youth Criminal Justice Act and exactly why it's able to do that and what it is? Yes, I I can certainly do my best. I have quite a bit of notes here. 
So um, buckle up and get excited. So I'm going to tell you guys a bit about the Youth Criminal Justice Act, or the YCJA, as I'll be calling it, because it's a mouthful. The Youth Criminal Justice Act is the law that governs Canada's youth justice system. So it applies to people who are at least 12 but under 18 years old. And it's intended to protect the public by holding the youth accountable, promoting their rehabilitation and reintegration back into society, and preventing crime. So the whole idea is that they want to like obviously hold the youth accountable, but then allow them to reintegrate back into society so that they can continue having a better life than they previously had and to prevent future crime. Um, so it states that the youth criminal justice system has to be separate from the adult system because youth are presumed to be less morally blameworthy than adults. So kind of like when Nicole said she was 12, she didn't really know any better. Um, so they have special procedures to kind of ensure that young people are treated fairly and that their rights are protected. And it really emphasizes the importance of like timely intervention to reinforce the link between the, the offense and its consequences. So kind of teach them that some of your actions do have consequences, but that doesn't mean it needs to ruin your life kind of deal. And so it set, the YCJ sets out a legislative framework for Canada's youth and kind of provides direction to assist in achieving a system that's fair and effective for Canada's youth. And so in the history of the YCJA, there have been three youth justice statutes. So from 1908 to 1984, it was the Juvenile Delinquents Act. And then from 1984 to 2003, it was the Young Offenders Act. And then from 2003 to 2021, I guess, um, it's the Youth Criminal Justice Act. And then in 2012, um, our current Youth Criminal Justice Act was amended um, by Parliament, just fixed a couple things that needed to be fixed. And so the 2003 Youth Criminal Justice Act introduced significant reforms from the previous Youth Offenders Act. So some of which include the overuse of courts incarceration in less serious cases, which is a huge issue, um, the unfairness in sentencing, and the lack of effective reintegration of youth from custody. And it also um, touched on the need to take more interest in the youth's victims, which is very interesting. Um, so I talk about all of that. So first off, the YCJA has like a preamble and a declaration of principle that applies throughout the act. So it kind of tells you what they're about. So yeah, so it states the values upon which the legislation is based. And these statements help uh, lawmakers interpret the legislation. And so it says things like, society has the responsibility to address the developmental changes and needs of young persons. Uh, communities and families should work in partnership with others to prevent youth crime by addressing its underlying causes, responding to the needs of young persons and providing guidance and support. I really like that one because it addresses the underlying causes of why that person felt the need to um, do that crime. And it also mentions that you should take into account the interests of victims and ensure accountability through meaningful consequences, rehabilitation and reintegration, which is the main principle that this act is based on. And then the Declaration of Principle sets out the policy framework of the legislation and it provides guidance on the priority that's to be given to key principles. 
So things like the youth system must be separate from the adult system and it's intended to protect the public and um, youth have their own rights and freedoms and that needs to be taken into account in court. So in addition to this preamble and declaration of principle, it also includes other things such as extrajudicial measures. So this is one of the key objectives of the YCJA because it wants to, like I've said already, uh, increase the use and effectiveness of non-court responses to less serious offenses. So as I said, a lot of the youth have been um, detained for less serious crimes and they've had to go to jail for less serious crimes. Was not the case for this uh, story. But um, in some of them, such as like shoplifting, they'd be given jail time, which seems like a bit of an overreaction. Um, and there's other things that they can do. So it's said that extrajudicial measures should be used in all cases where they would be adequate to hold the young person accountable, when they would be adequate to hold first time nonviolent offenders accountable. And they may be used if the young person has previously been dealt with by extrajudicial measures or has been found guilty of an offense. So the YCJA requires police officers to consider the use of extrajudicial measures before deciding to charge a young person. And so some of these measures are taking no further action, which seems silly because that's my opinion. Um, they can just receive a warning from a police officer. They can receive a police caution, which is just a more formal warning. They can receive a crown caution, which is warnings from a prosecutor. Um, there can be referrals. So the youth in question would be referred to a community program or agency that can help them to not commit offenses, which helps with the rehabilitation. And then there can be extrajudicial sanctions which are the most formal type of extrajudicial measure because they can be administered pre or post charge. So these ones are used. Um, they can only be used if the young person admits responsibility for the offending behavior and consents to be subject to the sanction. Um, their admission of responsibility is not the same as pleading guilty, which is interesting. Um, so these extrajudicial measures have been proven to work because in 1999, under the Youth Offenders Act, 63% of youth ac accused of a crime were charged. However, in 2010, under the YCJA, only 42% of youth accused of a crime were charged. So that's a marked decrease, which is very good to see. Oh, and additionally, under the YCJA, youth court cases declined by 26% between 2002 and 2010 which is also nice to see. And so these extrajudicial measures are definitely working. However, if they were not enough to resolve the young person's case, then they will be subject to youth court, which happened in the case of Jasmine Richardson. And so when they are charged with an offense, they may be, they can remain in the community or they can be kept in custody or in pre-child detention until the trial takes place. Um, prior to the YCJA, pre-child detention was being overused, and a large number of the people, the youth who were charged with relatively minor offenses were being detained, and often they were being detained for things that wouldn't have gotten an adult detained for, so it was very unfair. 
And then in 2012, it was amended again to kind of reduce the complexity of it so that they can make a better decision at the pretrial stage. And um, a youth may only be detained if the following criteria are met. So the youth has to be charged with a serious offense for which an adult will be liable to imprisonment for five years or more, or they have a history of outstanding charges or findings of guilt. So this would have been applicable in Jasmine Richard's case because it was a very serious offense. Um, they can also be detained if it's suspected that they will not be will not appear in court when required, or it's likely that they're going to commit a serious offense during the time before trial. Um, or they have been charged with a serious offense and there are exceptional circumstances that justify the detention, which is very, very vague. And I don't love it, but that's okay. And then the last kind of reason to keep someone in detention is that if they release them, then the conditions would not be sufficient to address the court's concern about releasing the youth. So the last two points, again, are very vague, um, and it has been shown that there is an increase in the use of pretrial detention under the YCJA from 2009 to 2003. So there's a 15% increase of people being detained. I just wanted to make a quick quick note, because he said something like, um, so they can be charged if an adult would obtain at least five years imprisonment? They can be detained before trial if oh okay. what they did yeah if what they did would have given an adult at least five years because I quickly googled uh like any sort of minimum serious drug offense for adults doesn't even reach five years so this I'm not, if it was a different case like not massacring your whole family but say like Jasmine was like trafficking and producing and whatever cocaine like she wouldn't have to be detained before because it's not five years no and so like that's that's kind of what they're like getting to is that a lot of the young children aren't doing things like shoplifting doesn't require you to be detained before your court date and unfortunately it's been primarily used to deal with youth who are charged with nonviolent offenses. So say they breached a bail condition, they'd be charged before their court date, which is ridiculous. And yeah, so that kind of made me very upset because even though we have these great things in place, they are not being used for what they should be. Um, interestingly, prior to the YCJA, Canada had one of the highest youth incarceration rates in the Western world. So prior to 2003, we had the most kids in jail. What? Isn't that awful? That surprises me. Yeah. It's really surprising, actually. Yeah, not great. And then I had a class and we talked about the Youth Criminal Justice Act and she made us watch a video about the kids in the States who were being arrested for things like talking back to their teacher or doing something in their classroom, they would call the police in and they would be arrested and taken to jail. And it was the silliest things. And it was so, so aggressive. And it, yeah, it broke my heart. I did not like it. That I seems so and, wrong. I mean, it yeah. is. It, that's 
Yeah, it was not good. I'll try and find the video name so I can put it in our source list so you guys can watch it and become as enraged as me. Under the YCJA, the purpose of youth sentences is to hold young persons accountable through just sanctions that ensure meaningful consequences for them and promote their rehabilitation and reintegration into society, which contributes to the long-term protection of the public. You guys will be hearing that sentence a lot. That is the main idea of the Youth Criminal Justice Act. And so sentencing principles emphasize that a youth sentence must, it can't be more severe than what an adult would receive for the same offense. It has to be similar to youth sentences in similar cases. It has to be proportionate to the seriousness of the offense and the degree of responsibility of the young person. And it has to be the least restrictive alternative. It has to be the sentencing option that is most likely to rehabilitate and reintegrate the young person. And it has to promote in the young person a sense of responsibility and acknowledgement of the harm done by the offense. So it kind of makes them recognize that what they did was bad. So that's very nice. So there are restrictions on custody. And usually custody sentences are intended to be reserved for violent offenders and serious repeat offenders. Um, So a young person can't be sentenced to custody unless they have committed a violent offense, have failed to comply with non-custodial sentences, they committed a serious indictable offense and had a history that indicated a pattern or findings of guilt. Or in exceptional cases where the young person had committed an indictable offense and the aggravating circumstances of the offense were such that any sentence other than custody would have been inconsistent or unfair. Um, So that's pretty much what I said when I talked about pretrial detention. Um, And then so for sentencing options... They, the YCJ introduced a whole bunch of new sentencing options that allow the youth court judges to deal with the full range of youth crime. And so the first that you can kind of receive is a reprimand. So a stern lecture or warning from a judge saying, don't do that. Shoplifting is bad. Um, so you can like slap all- on the wrist. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. That's just like a parental move. Like, hey, don't do that. Yeah, for obviously for the less serious offenses. Um, and then you can have an intensive support and supervision order. So this provides a closer monitoring and more support than a probation order to assist the young person in changing their behavior. And then they can have an attendance order, which requires the person to attend a program at a specified time and on conditions set by the judge. So, yeah, the attendance order kind of sounds to me like Alcoholics Anonymous kind of helps them deal if they have a substance abuse problem or that was the underlying cause of this crime. It can kind of help them with that. So the attendance order is uh, most often crafted to fit the individual person. It's not just a blanket order. And so you can have also a deferred custody and supervision order, which allows the young person to serve their sentence in the community, but under conditions. So, and then if the conditions are violated, then they're sent to custody. This one is not offered to young people who are capable of serious bodily harm to themselves or others, such as Jasmine Richardson. So, that's at at least good to hear, because I would not would not want a child serial or a child killer. 
in yeah. my neighborhood. No. So that, yeah, that one's again, safe for people who did not massacre their entire family. This one, however, which is intensive rehabilitative custody and supervision order is reserved for serious violent offenders and or serious repeat offenders. So this is the kind of sentence that Jasmine Richardson would have received. Um, from between 2002 to 2010, the number of custody sentences actually dropped by 64%, which is very impressive and good to hear. And Canada's youth incarceration rate has declined by almost 50% after the YCJA was introduced. So that is fantastic. And again, prior to the Youth Criminal Justice Act in 2003, Canada's youth legislation allowed young people who were 14 years of age or older to be transferred to adult court and given an adult sentence. Um, this, again, does not apply to this case because she was only 12, so we wouldn't have had to worry about her being tried as an adult. Um, so in 2012, Parliament amended the adult sentencing provisions and included that if a person is 14 years of age or older, and is charged with a serious violent offense, the prosecutor can decide to not apply for an adult sentence, um, but they are required to at least consider applying for an adult sentence. I'm not sure why, but that's that's a rule now. Um, The courts can also impose an adult sentence on a youth if The prosecution disagrees that the young person has a diminished moral blameworthiness or culpability, so they feel that the person is old enough to understand that what they did was bad. Um, And they feel that a youth sentence wouldn't be long enough to hold the person accountable. So in Jasmine's case, so she was a bit older, say like 16, 17. And if they decided to try her as an adult, She's found guilty. Would she then go to adult prison? Like have a 16-year-old in with the rest of the adult population? No, No, that's my next point. So if a young person who's under the age of 18 and they receive an adult sentence, they will be placed in a youth facility and they cannot be placed in an adult correctional facility until they're 18. Then they have the option to put them in an adult facility but if the prosecutor feels that the person isn't like mature enough or would not do well in an adult facility, then they have to wait till they're 20. And when they're 20, they will be put into an adult facility. So. Interesting. Um, yeah, very much so. And yeah, so this amendment kind of made it that no person under 18 years old can serve any portion of their sentence in an adult facility, which is really good. Like I've said multiple times, the YCJA provides many provisions to assist the young person's reintegration into the community. And so the focus of every sentence has to be on the reintegration and um, prevention of future crime from that individual. So every period of custody um, is followed by a period of supervision and support in the community as part of their sentence. So that was seen in the Jasmine Richards case where she was given a sentence to serve out in a facility and then she was also given community time. And so judges have to clearly state 
in open court the portion of the sentence to be served in custody and the portion to be served in the community. And before they start the community supervision portion, um, the court can require that the young person remain in custody if there's um, if they believe that that individual will commit an offense causing death or serious harm if they're released into the community at the end of the sentence. So I'm very intrigued as to why she was allowed to have that community time and how much she would have had to improve from a 12-year-old homicidal maniac to being released into the community. From my understanding, I think there is something about the defense, I don't know, some lawyer, they were saying like, oh, she's really learned um, from what she's done while being in, like, spending time in jail, all of this stuff. And so I guess there was a very um, strong idea that she wasn't still screwed up in the head necessarily. And that she was like, oh, crap, it was a one time mistake, may have murdered my family, but I know it's wrong now. Yeah. And it kind of sounds to me like when an adult's released from prison, they have to like, or released on parole, like they have to apply to a parole board. It was kind of my understanding as well. That's kind of what it made me think of. Um, so the YCJ also requires that there is a youth worker that collaborates with the young person and kind of plans their reintegration into society. And so this reintegration plan kind of identifies programs and activities that are aimed at maximizing the young person's chance for a successful reintegration into society. And I really like that idea. I think that's really important. And I feel like that should be done for adults as well, because we're definitely lacking a good rehabilitation reintegration program for our adult population. And also when the young person is serving the community supervision portion of their sentence, the youth worker kind of supervises them and provides support and assistance to kind of get them the help that they need and to kind of implement and keep that reintegration plan on track. So kind of making me think of like a parole officer, but for youth. And so their rehabilitation and reintegration back into community is promoted prior to release as well through reintegration leaves. And so this is when the young person can be authorized to have a reintegration leave for medical, compassionate or humanitarian reasons. And surprisingly to me, these leaves can be up to a period of 30 days and the provincial director can renew them and extend them. 30 days. Yeah, I feel like you'd have to have a really good reason to be let out for 30 days. Is this this is under full supervision, though, is it not? Yeah. No, it's not like they're just released. Out and about. Yeah. Why would you? Because it's kind of like, is it furlough where inmates can apply for to um, like go home for a funeral? That's kind of what it made me think of. I did not know that was a thing. That is interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of the same idea, which is kind of nice that um, our youth has that. It's weird that it's up for 30 days. Um, But I guess not every time has to be 30 days. And so um, the identity of a young person is also, it's also very important that that should be protected. When you hear of a young person committing a crime, they often don't release their name. 
And this is done on the idea that if a young person's identity was released, it would impede their rehabilitation efforts and it would detrimentally affect the young person. And in the long run, it could compromise public safety. However, the identity of the young person can be released if they were given an adult sentence or if they determine that the young person poses a significant risk of committing another violent offense and that publishing the identity of the young person is necessary to protect the public against that risk. That was something I forgot to mention. So during the whole trial and like crime or whatever, they could not publish Jasmine's name. They called her JR or just the individual, like they weren't allowed to say her name because of a publication ban because she was minor. And I don't think it was until the fact, well, obviously everyone had their suspicions because the Richardson family died and the daughter was a suspect. They, everyone can like kind of fit the pieces together, but yeah, they were like for the longest time, they weren't allowed to say her name. Yeah, but that definitely makes sense. And so another major part of the YCJA is the like inclusion of families and the victims and the communities in the youth criminal justice system, which helps with the rehabilitation and reintegration of the individual. And so the major way that they do this is through conferences. And so these conferences have been used to help make decisions regarding young people who have committed a crime and are involved in the youth justice system. And so they provide an opportunity for a wide range of perspectives on a case, and they offer more creative solutions, better coordination of services, and increased involvement of the victim and other community members. And so this kind of idea is very, very prevalent in Aboriginal um, justice because they are very community focused. So it's very important to them that everyone has a say and they focus on community rehabilitation and all of that. Um, so conferences can give advice on decision decisions, such as like the appropriate judicial measures, conditions for release from pretrial detention, the appropriate sentence that the individual should receive, and plans for reintegrating the young person back into their community after being in custody. So that being said, the conference is not a decision-making body. It only provides advice or recommendations to a decision-maker like the judge. So the recommendations can only be accepted if they are consistent with the Youth Criminal Justice Act. And lastly, um, the principles of the Youth Criminal Justice Act talk a lot about the concerns of the victims, which I think is very, very interesting. And so the victims are to be given information about the proceedings and an opportunity to participate and be heard. So if they participate in a conference, they can have a say on what kind of sentence and extrajudicial measures should be used in this case. And so it's very important that these victims are to be treated with courtesy, compassion and respect for their dignity and privacy, which makes sense. Um, they also have a right of access to youth court records. And um, like what I said, their participation in community-based approaches um, is very encouraged. And if a young person is dealt with by an extrajudicial sanction and they are not um, taken to youth court, then the victim of the offense is entitled to be informed as to how the offense was dealt with. So they're kept very much in the loop, which I think is very interesting. Um, 
But yeah, that's all I have to say about victims. There was only a short blurb in one of my sources, but I really like that they include them so much. And so in conclusion, um, the Youth Criminal Justice Act is the legal foundation upon which Canada's youth criminal justice system is built. It recognizes that in order to protect society, youth who commit crimes have to be held accountable through measures that are proportionate to the seriousness of their crimes. So they can't be giving given outlandish sentences for something very small. And so these measures need to promote the rehabilitation of the youth and by helping them successfully reintegrate back into society can help them prevent from committing further offenses and can kind of help them get their life back on track, which is very nice. And I really, really support and like that they have such a strong emphasis on the rehabilitation reintegration, because especially if Jasmine was 12 when she went into jail and she was like 18, I guess, when she came out, that she still has a lot of life left to give. But if she's fully committed to going down the wrong path, that's not what you want. So by kind of having these measures in place, they can fix that and maybe prevent further family massacres. And that's all I have to say about the Youth Criminal Justice Act. I wonder what would have happened if this had happened four years prior. Because the YCJA was 2003. This crime was 2006. Like, what would have happened to Jasmine if it wasn't in place? You know what I mean? Well, they still would have had, like, the Young Offenders Act, but it wouldn't have had all of the provisions that the Youth Criminal Justice Act would have had. So I'm not totally sure what would have happened, but I doubt that she would have only had a 10-year sentence and would have been allowed back into community. I'm not glad the crime happened, but I'm glad that it happened at a time when the Youth Criminal Justice Act had new provisions put in so they could work on rehabilitating her and not, not preparing her for society again. Yeah, that's very, very good. Like, although she didn't serve a lot of time, I think, like you said, that rehab part of it, only having, because of her, um, whatever it's called, she only served six years in jail, whatever the facility was, because of her pre-trial custody. And then she also had psychiatric um, treatment, which I think helped a lot in this case because no one really in their right mind would go and massacre their family out of love. Um, and then like, it's not like a, Oh, you're done. Here you go. Cause then she also had that supervision in the community after. So it's like a slow and steady release. I don't know if that makes sense. It made sense in my yeah. mind. <laughs> no, it may, Yeah, no, it makes sense how they're just kind of like, that's a big part of their reintegration is just kind of making sure that they're ready and that they have all of the support in place to help them have the most successful rehabilitation and reintegration possible. I think funds within the criminal justice system need to start to be allocated towards adult offenders, like you said, Journey, being rehabilitated in the same process. I feel like crime numbers would go down drastically if they took the same like precautions in steps with adult offenders yeah i definitely think that if they had a better focus on the actual rehabilitation of adult offenders we would have less reoffenses. and if they kind of made it easier because kind of like what we saw with the no fork four 
where they were kind of just put back into society and it wasn't great. But if we had a little bit better system in place where they can get a job and kind of make money and make it easier for them to start a life so they don't have to resort to crime, I think that would be very, very beneficial. I I completely agree. It's kind of like that saying that has gone around that if you treat them like animals, they'll behave like animals. And I think if you treat criminals like humans, even though they're not nice humans, then the chances of them being nicer humans instead of not as nice as before humans, (laughs) it'll work. Yes, (laughs) there's definitely different levels of crime. And I don't think that murderers should be just released. I feel like there should be different steps for different kind of levels of crime. I agree, because I know, what was it? Was it 13th 13th documentary we watched? But the, the incarceration levels on mild crime offenses, like drug possession, whatever, whatever. They get these absurd number of years and they're like pinned to felon for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. Whereas you have these murderers, like they're not the same and yet they're all treated, not treated the same. I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I I, I got, I picking up what you put down. <laughs> Thank you so much, Journey, for telling us all about the Youth Criminal Justice Act. It was very interesting to learn how it played a part in uh, Jasmine Richardson's sentence. Um, and also thank you to Nicole, who told us all about Jeremy Stanky and Jasmine Richardson. For our next topic, we wanted to talk about Vince Lee and the Greyhound incident that happened in Canada um, a few years ago. Uh, we will be talking about criminal responsibility with this case study as we wanted to kind of keep on track with the legal system. We talked about how minors can can or cannot be held criminally responsible. And now we just want to delve a little bit into uh, criminal responsibility when it comes to mental disorder. Um, yeah, so I'm very excited for that next week. And I also just have a joke for you guys. Yay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I thought this one was like kind of appropriate for what we're talking about right now because it's like it's not a science joke, but it made me giggle. Okay. What do you call a judge who broke the law? What? Criminal justice. (laughs) (laughs) That is fantastic, actually. Right? I loved it. It made me laugh when I saw it. I was like, oh, this is the one. That is excellent. Oh my god. I was just gonna be like, uh the corrupt system, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Criminal justice. No, this is a funny joke, Nicole. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I don't understand humor. My bad. So I just wanted to say uh thank you to the listener who actually gave us this topic and idea. We went to high school together. And so it's really nice to see that people are really enjoying our podcast and feel comfortable enough to reach out to us and give us ideas. And we really, really appreciate that. And we love it so much. So thank you for suggesting this. And if any of you other listeners have any suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us. We absolutely love it. Yeah, it was really all three of us were like, 
guys, someone actually messaged us. Like, we have a next topic. We were so excited. And going off that, I just want to thank um, my own brother. He's going to start to edit our audio. The three of us, us it's been very difficult um, since we're still in university. My brother just graduated, so congratulations. And he loves this kind of stuff. So if the audio is better, that's his fault. If it's worse, it's his fault. And we will be doing it the next episode. <laughs> But our next episode on Vince Lee, I think it's going to be three weeks time just because school has been really picking up. It's midterm season right now. Um, so obviously school comes first for us. So it'll be a little bit delayed. I hope you guys don't mind. Something we just kind of do for fun. And obviously, yeah, school comes first above everything else. Yeah, so we really hope you enjoyed our podcast this week. We sure enjoyed recording it. Um, if you wanted to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics, or you can find us on Twitter at WT Forensics PC, or our website and our email. You can contact us with suggestions. Uh, website is whattheforensics.ca, and our email is whattheforensics at gmail.com. So this has been another episode of What the Forensics, and we'll see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week.